Last week, we looked at praise. Judah means praise. Judah was the son, the fourth son of a, I think, godly woman, son of Israel. He was also given a position of privilege, and we looked at that. All the words there in verses uh, three, um, four, I'm sorry, four are terms of privilege. Then we looked at the prophet. They were given the prophet. They were given the prophecy. They were given the promises. But what do they have now? We are looking at now, today, we're going to stop, start with verse, it says, where will you be stricken again in verse 5? We're going to look at the punishment. We're going to look at the presence of the enemy in verses 7. In verse 8, we're going to look at pretty lady's problem. In verse 9, we're going to look at the remnant. I couldn't come up with a P, so if anybody can think of something that means I thought of leftovers, portion, I couldn't think of anything. It begins with portion. Okay, portion. Okay, it's the remnant in verse 9. Verse 10, proud Jerusalem. And then we're going to look, if we have time, we're going to look at pictures of Jesus Christ in the temple. Let's look at punishment first, verses 5 and 6. It says, where will you be stricken again? As you continue in rebellion, the whole, head is, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. You see that word stricken? That word stricken means to beat, to slay, or to kill. It's the same word in Genesis 19 when it says the angels smote the men with blindness when uh, they went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Exodus 7.25 uses the same word when God smote the river and turned it into blood. Now what's going on here is they're sinning, they're ignoring, their positions of privilege, they're abusing it. He trying, he's trying to restore the relationship. And what you see here is how far he goes in that effort. He's thorough in trying to correct their behavior. If you look at verse 27, who is it that will be redeemed? It is the repentant ones. He is trying to get them to repent. Look at the description of the nation. <clears throat> it shows them how bad it is. Their whole head is faint. There is nothing in their body that has not sick or been hurt. The whole body, top to bottom, is sick. If you're curious in how they, uh, what their medicine was like, look at uh, what it says, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. That's how they treated their wounds and their bruises back then. The oil was a softening agent. So I used to think that what was going on here, when it says the sole of the foot, I thought he was being using figurative speech to describe the nation. Until I read... Let me turn there. Turn to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. I realize that what's going on here is that Isaiah is actually only given a partial list of what he does. He's actually doing a whole lot more than just devastating their cities and making them sick because there is a list of things that he promised. Here in Leviticus chapter 26, I want to show you something. I want to show you what he promised he would do with them. Look at verse uh, 16. 
It says, I, in turn, will do this to you. And he's talking about, if you back up, he says, if you reject my statutes, which is what they're doing in Isaiah, he says, this is what I'm going to do to you. This is Leviticus chapter 26, verse 16. I, in turn, will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. See what it is? It's exactly the same thing that's going on in Isaiah. They're getting sick. He promised them they would do that. They were warned what would happen. Then, <clears throat> also in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he gives another example. He gives a list of the things that he will do. Let me read just a little bit and so you know how thorough, and what we're looking for here is what exactly he did to him. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He said, I will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also after these things you do not obey me, I will punish you seven times. Now, when you see the word seven times, what, is it, what does the word seven mean? He's going to say it over and over again here. I will punish you seven times. I will punish you seven times. I will punish you seven times in this list here. When you hear the word seven, what does the word seven mean in the Bible? Completion or perfection. He is going to completely punish them, is what he's saying. Now go back to what we just read. He's saying, I, from top to bottom, he's saying the same thing. I'm going to punish you thoroughly. Again, look at the list. He says in verse, I will punish you seven more times in verse 18. He says, I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. He's talking about famine. If then you act with hostility against me, that didn't work, so I'm going to try something else, and you are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which will de uh, bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your numbers so that your roads lie deserted. Do you hear what he just said? Animals are going to come out of the woods and eat your children and your animals. And if this, and if by these things you are not turned to me, okay, that didn't work, I'm going to try something else. But act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. And I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you will be delivered into your enemy's hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring it back to your bread in ration amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Go on to verse 29. It says, further, you will eat the flesh of your, what's that say? You eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters, you will eat. It's going to get so bad when these nations are attacking them in the siege that they're going to have nothing to eat. And what are they going to have to eat? Their children. Listen, guys, God put them through extreme things, not to be mean, but you're seeing how hard he is trying to get them to repent of their sins. Now, listen. If you're going through that, you're getting to the point where you have to do that and you're still not repenting, do you see how hard their hearts are? 
Do you see how rebellious these people are? God is doing everything he can. Go back to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Not only does he make them personally sick with fever and consumption, it says the land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, now this is, I want you to look at this. Strangers are devouring them in your presence. You know what that means? It means that when the nation of, and I think what he's talking about here is that when Assyria was coming and he surrounded the city, he's destroyed everything around them, they were supposed to be, Ahaz supposedly had made a treaty with them. They were not good neighbors. They were not good allies. They are sitting there and they would get up in the morning plow, plant, weed, get everything ready, wait for harvest, and when harvest came, what would happen? They had nothing to eat. Why? Because the enemies were eating it. They would sit there, they're hungry, the enemies are eating what they worked for, and they can do nothing about it. If we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, again, there is another list. And what's interesting, if we read that list, it says as they're sitting them, watching their enemies eat their food, what was their reaction? It says it drove them mad. They're going crazy with what's going on. All this stuff that God is doing, listen, he's trying to restore the relationship. He's trying to fix it. Their hearts are so hard. They're so smug in their self-conceit. They're so proud from their privileged life. They thought they were special. They're just hard-hearted, rebellious children. It's all they are. It says the presence of the enemy in verse 7. At the start of Isaiah's ministry, and you notice it lists four kings. It says Uzziah, Jotham, or Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you start there under Uzziah, when Uzziah was king, he was one of the most talented kings that Judah ever had. Judah achieved very high status in the world when he ruled. He lasted 52 years, and he gained almost as much land and prestige as did David and Solomon. He was almost as good when it came to how big the kingdom was. Judah prospered under him. He had a great army. His economy was great. He grew things. But you go from Uzziah to Jotham, to Ahaz, and by the time you get to Ahaz, something happened. Assyria is showing up. What happened with Uzziah, do you know how Uzziah died? What happened to him? He got sick with leprosy. What was the cause of that leprosy? Pride. Pride. All that good stuff, he looked around and goes, instead of was God was blessing me, it was, look what I did. That started the downfall. Jerusalem right here is proud, and it started with Uzziah, okay? Listen, we're a very rich. We've got a great military. Sometimes we've got a great economy. What are you proud of? We should be proud of our godly heritage, not of our economy, not of our fertility, not of our, our great wealth and all that. We're in the same spot. Judah prospered unto him, but when Ahaz shows up, things have changed. Assyria is coming from the north. 
Now, Israel and Syria are being threatened, and their answer to the problem against Assyria is to go look to their, supposed to be family, but it's the next nation south now in Judah, and they say, Judah, you come help us fight Assyria. Now, Ahaz doesn't like that idea. And what happens next is just pure, I don't understand it. Instead of going and attacking Assyria, they fight each other. Ahaz does not want to be an ally with the northern nation. Instead, he wants to be an ally with Assyria. And so what he does is he takes some presents, he takes some gold and some silver, and he goes to, okay, I'm going to try to pronounce his name, Tiglath-Pileser. And buddy, if I pronounce your name wrong, I'm sorry, but I don't think I'm ever going to see you in heaven. So this guy is leading this Assyria headed south. He's taken over the whole world. He's a world power. He gives Ahaz what he wants. He comes down and he wipes him out. He wipes out. In 732, he takes out Damascus and he solves the siege problem that was going against Jerusalem. Okay? So Ahaz gets what he wants. Then 10 years later, he comes and he knocks out the northern tribes, and he takes the ten northern tribes away, scatters them throughout the world, most of them. Now, Judah watches this, and what happens is during that siege, he lost 120,000 people, 120,000 dead. Also, 200,000 are captured. Now, eventually he gets those back, but they take a big hit, and... By the time this is all over, he thought he had a peace treaty, like I said before, with Assyria. They're not friends, they're enemies. In fact, they come, and later, we're going to read this in a few chapters later, they're going to attack Jerusalem too. They're not allies. Ahaz's plan, it didn't work. To me, it's just, I don't get it. You've got this enemy, and you're, listen, the northern tribes, it may have been a nation that you didn't like, but your family, Okay? But all they're doing is killing each other instead of fighting the bad guys. But that's what happens under Ahaz. The land is desolate. Look at verse 8. So Jerusalem, she's surrounded. Look at what happens. It says the daughter of Zion. What is he talking about, the daughter of Zion? The daughter of Zion is God's pet word for his girl. Jerusalem is God's girl. Now, there's several things here we've got to make note of. Anytime, we're going to, what's going to happen here? You notice, we go back to verse 1. We're talking about two things in this vision. We're talking about Judah, and then we're talking about Jerusalem. Judah is what we're going through right now, but then Jerusalem is going to start coming into the picture, and by the end of the book, Judah is faded, and his whole concentration is on Jerusalem. Jerusalem is very important to God, okay? And we're starting to see that we're fading from Judah, and we're going into Jerusalem now. It's the capital city of Judah, of the southern kingdom. Whenever you look and you see Jerusalem, though, you've got to figure something out before you, you get started. Which Jerusalem are we talking about? This Jerusalem here during this time is a capital city, but it is a, uh, what's the word he uses for her in, uh, oh, she's a harlot. How the faithful city has become a harlot in verse 21. There's going to be another Jerusalem, though, and we're going to see her immediately in chapter 2. That's the Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. She is a faithful city. She is a world leader, and all the world is coming to her. And then there's a third one, 
And think about this. When we're thinking about the daughter of Zion, this is one of the verses that helped me figure this out. It says in Revelation chapter 21, 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride. Does that help you figure out what God is thinking when he thinks about Jerusalem? Now, if you're a harlot, the only way you can be a harlot is if you're married, okay? He calls her pretty lady. You know where I get that from? That is my favorite word when it's just me and Marilyn. That's what I call my wife. God looks at the city of Jerusalem. Now, when you talk about a city, we're not talking about the buildings and the structures and the walls and all that, although that's discussed later. Because it says in verse 10, hear and give ear. Okay, buildings don't listen. Who listens and who gives ears? People. He's talking about the people here. The people here are beautiful to him. When he talks about the daughter, he wants you to think of her in the way that you think of an attractive lady. Okay? Now, when... God made Marilyn. God knew what I liked. I think she's pretty, okay? When God looks at his people in this city, they are attractive to him. They are special to him. Now, that adds a little bit of element to here. You want to make a man, a husband, really, really mad? Mess around with my girl. You'll get so mad that there's things in Proverbs when I read, I think there are some, some types of anger that just never... Never will a man get over. You mess with my wife, I don't know if I'll ever get over that one. Okay? That's how serious this is. But that's how attached God is to this people. That's how important these people are. He calls her the daughter of Zion. Zion was one of the hills in which Jerusalem was built. It was in the southern part of the city. When you first read it in the Old Testament, it was uh, uh, inhabited by the Jebusites. David captured it and made it his home and headquarters it was later called the City of David or the Holy Hill. Now, it says that what has happened here, Pretty Lady's problem, is that she has, been, she has become like a shelter in a vineyard. The word there describes a temporary shelter that you would make so you could watch it for animals or for the enemy if they were coming and attacking your field. That is what he's describing Jerusalem as. What he's trying to get you to realize is that all the cities... And everything around Jerusalem is destroyed. She is alone. All the supporting cities around her and everything that supported that city is gone. Everything is barren. Everything is desolate. She is by herself, and she's isolated, and she's vulnerable. That's the situation we're looking at. Now look at verse 9. It says, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. Don't interpret what's going on here. I've just described a very weak nation, a very weak city, a very weak people. Don't interpret that as weakness on God's part. Don't do it. God's the one that did it. You say, well, Assyria come down? Well, we're going to see later that Assyria is merely a tool for what God wants done here. And what we see here, you notice that it says the... Uh, unless the Lord of a host. When you see that term, that is the number one name for God in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Malachi. 
It is to let you know that God is in charge of the most powerful army in all of existence. He's powerful. So don't interpret this as weakness on God's part. And he proves it by leaving a few, okay? Now, why is it a big deal that he leaves a few? Because Israel is a covenant people. God made promises to Israel that he made to no other people. Let me read just one of them. Indeed, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, it says, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. God, how are you going to do that if you wipe out your nation? So what has to happen? He has to leave a few. Isaiah chapter 10 Also, we're going to talk about this again. Listen to what he says in chapter 10. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those who have escaped will never truly rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. What he's saying there is that there will be in the last day, he says in the last day there, he's talking about at the end of this age before the millennial reign, there is going to be a small group of, and Romans also talks about this, and it adds the idea that we're talking about believers here. There is always going to be, in the worst situations, God in the nation of Israel will always have a small group of believers, no matter what happens. God will protect them by his sovereign grace. He will always have those. Why is that important? Because God is going to be faithful to his covenant. You know, one of the greatest proofs of the accuracy and the reliability of this book is the fact that Israel as a nation still exists. It has to exist in order for him to fulfill all the promises that he has made in this book. There are some promises in this book, the Abrahamic covenant, some of them have not been fulfilled yet. You remember when we were talking about the demons and what they did with the women and God had to destroy everybody but Noah? What do you think Satan was doing there? He was trying to corrupt the seed with what? Demonic influence. Over and over again, you can see where Satan, and some of the things that he's done, has tried to destroy either Jesus Christ or the nation of Israel. He hates Israel. He wants them gone. Because what would it do? It would turn God into a liar, and God would fail. It's not going to happen. There will always be a remnant. Verse 10. What are your multiplied sacrifices? I'm sorry. Verse 10 is, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of... No, wait a minute. Who is he talking about there? He's talking about Jerusalem. What did he just call Jerusalem? He called them rulers of Sodom? Give ear to the instruction of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. He's talking about Jerusalem. He says, you're not Jerusalem to me right now. You're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, back up in verse 9, he says, you would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You would be like Gomorrah. What he's talking about there is, unless God had protected you, you would be like, where's Sodom and Gomorrah right now? Do they exist? No, they don't exist. Okay, God wiped them out. If God had not protected them, they would be wiped out like them. But when he comes here and he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking about something else. He says, you're acting just like they did. 
I'm not calling you my special, privileged, holy people. I'm talking about you're the worst and gross of sinners. God's use of these names was designated to cut them to the quick and challenge their self-esteem and pride. They thought they were so much more than they were because of religion. They thought they could not do any wrong and go to hell because they were children of Abraham. It's not true. Their conscience was seared by generations of habitual sinning and smug satisfaction. But God is trying to get their attention. You realize that there are degrees of punishment? Do you realize that it will be worse for the people of Jerusalem than it will be for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? These people are doing something worse than the grossest sins of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that God had to go down and destroy. God says these people are worse. Let me show you where we get that. First of all, the Bible says in Hebrews 10, listen to this, for if we can go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, listen to that, that's important, that's what's making them worse. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. They are willingly ignoring the revelation of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. They're trampling on the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What happens to them? How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? There is severer uh, judgment. Now, if you hear the gospel and you reject Jesus, you are now in a position of a deeper hell. You cannot hear, listen to this, you cannot hear God's word and then just shift into neutral. It's not happening. When you come here and you come hear the word of God, you're either going to walk away better, happier, closer to heaven, or you're going to walk away sadder, worse, and deeper in hell. There is no such thing as going and walking away unchanged. It does not happen. It's not an option. So, these people were privileged. They had things, the rest of this dark, they had the light of the Old Testament. They had the prophets. They had the temple. They had God's working in their lives. What do they get if they reject it? Greater judgment. Every hearer of God's word is going to be affected by it. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus makes a big deal about this in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, and then I want you to look at some verses in the next chapter over in Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 10. He makes this statement. <clears throat> he says, it will be more tolerable the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment for that city. And then he takes off that. Look at, I want you to turn to Matthew 11. I'm going to read from Matthew 11. And start with verse 20. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities of which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sodom, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tar and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now listen, <clears throat> these cities right here, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, where was Jesus' headquarters when he was ministering Galilee for that three plus years? Where was he? His headquarters was in Capernaum on the North Sea of Galilee. Okay, so this is basically his home base. <clears throat> these two cities are just north of, so they're all in the same area. Chorazin was a small village about two and a half miles north, and Bethsaida was a little bit north of that and west. Philip, Andrew, Peter all came from this area. He did many miracles. There's some scenes that he describes there. He's night, he wants to go to bed, he wants to eat, and people are just lined up as far as you can see. But you know what he does? He does whatever it takes. He heals them, he heals them, he heals them. He does miracles, he does miracles. They saw hundreds, maybe thousands of miracles. The Bible says that you can't even write down all the things that he did, okay? They saw that more than any other people in Galilee. <clears throat> How did they react? If, verse 21, they would have repented, okay, long ago. What's he saying? He's telling them that the two cities of Tyre and Sidon, in the mind of the Jew at that time, what would they have thought of if Tyre and Sidon? Uh, think Las Vegas, but worse, okay? These were Phoenician cities on the coast, just a little bit to the west of where they were at, okay? Very familiar. The Phoenicians were seafarers, sailors, spent most of their life on the sea, but when they came to town, what did they do? They made up for it, okay? Very vulgar, very gross lifestyle. They also, according to Amos chapter 1, had a nasty habit of once in a while coming over and capturing Jews and selling them as slaves. So when you, the Jews thought of these guys, they were thinking, what? Really don't like these guys. These guys are the worst, okay? They didn't like them, and they considered them the lowest of the low. So what is Jesus saying when he says, they're better than you are? What's his point? He says that if they had seen the miracles that he just did for them, they would have repented. They would not just have repented. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. True, deep repentance. They would have changed. Uh, you who know me, who've seen all these miracles, did you change? No, you didn't. They are better than you. He says in verses 22 and 24, in the day of judgment. You know what he's talking about? <clears throat> in the day of judgment in 24, he's talking about the great white throne judgment. What's going to happen in the great white throne judgment? When that day comes and he decides who he's going to throw into the lake of fire for all eternity... Guess who's going? You. And they may go to hell, but they're going in a worse place, in a better place, I'm sorry, than you. You're going into more 
severe, harder judgment than the bad guys, because you're worse than they are. Now, he compares all them also to, to Sodom, Capernaum to Sodom, and you go, okay, if you want to think of the worst city ever, what would you think of? Sodom. Now, why would you think Sodom is the worst? Gross homosexuality. Uh, they tried to rape the angels when they showed up, and when God tried to show up, remember he talked to Abraham, I'm going to see if I can find some godly people. Did he find anybody? Not many. Not enough to stop the judgment. And they flaunted. They were just open about it. They didn't try to hide it. Now, you think about Sodom and you're thinking of the worst. But these guys' sin here in Capernaum and these cities is worse than that nasty, vulgar, outright, gross sin that we think about, okay? What was their sin? Now, did they attack Jesus? Did they persecute him? Did they uh, say bad things about him? They didn't do any of that. Now, they didn't have the gross, vulgar sin that Sodom and Gomorrah had. They might have had some, but it wasn't at the level that these guys were. And they really didn't abuse Jesus. So why are they worse? What is a worse sin than that? Unbelief. They just kind of, well, when he did his miracles, that was fun. When he spoke, well, I enjoyed that. That was a good sermon. Uh, But did it change them? Did they repent of their sins? Did they acknowledge that they were sinners? No. They were full of self-righteousness. They had created their own religion. They did not need a Savior. They did not need to repent. I'm fine just the way I am. Okay? All those sins, ah, no big deal. I'll just go offer a sacrifice, and that'll take care of that. What did they do? They ignored Jesus Christ. They tolerated him. But they did not repent. Isaiah is saying the same thing to Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 1. You're worse than Sodom. You're a city of great privilege, but your privilege and your pride has made you worse than the worst of cities. I'm going to finish with this. You cannot mess around with Jesus. They didn't protest him. They didn't persecute him. They didn't have that open, gross, out there sin. They just didn't pay that much attention to him. They were respectful to him, but they did not, they did not treat him as Lord and Master and give him control of their life, put away their sins, and live a life of righteousness. When you come here and you hear the Word of God, people, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Would it actually have been better for you just to stay home and not hear the Word of God? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to let you answer that. Because if you come here or if you go anywhere or if you even read the Word of God, maybe it's on Christian radio, anywhere, and you hear the Word of God, Don't shift into neutral. Don't think you can do it. It is not an option. Even if you think you're doing it, you're not. 
even if you're not aware of it, it will change you. Did it send you deeper into hell or did you draw closer to the God who loves you and is worthy of your best of your life?